Welcome, everyone, to episode 83, Big Picture Zika. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How you doing over there, Dalen? I'm doing all right. I know we posted an episode. We did. But this is like the first, that was kind of a review episode. This is the first episode of the new year. I'm excited. It's going to be a great year for science. And, you know, we ended the year kind of with Egan, with Zika. Then the year in review was very much about Zika. So what are we going to do today? We're going to kick it off. 2017, the year of Zika. Zika, Zika, Zika. Zika. Hopefully this year is not all about Zika. No, listen, this is going to be the year Zika dies, I hope. Yeah, I mean, maybe it'll just be the year of exciting science surrounding Zika. Opening doors right and left. We'll see. We will see. So I'm excited for 2017, too. Ready to get down to the show? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Let's get down to business. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you will find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and please subscribe to our YouTube channel. We do have a great show today. Like Dalen said, we've discussed the Zika virus quite a bit on the show, and given its rapid rise and effect on global health, we are going to try our best to really keep all of you informed and up to date on how stem cells are benefiting from the research into this virus's etiology and potential treatments. And along those lines, our guest today is Dr. Hong Jun Song. He's the director of the stem cell program at John Hopkins University. And in this interview, we're going to discuss big picture topics, not necessarily the nitty gritty science, but big picture stuff related to Zika and the outlook for 2017. But let's round it up. We got to do that. You ready, Dalen? Yes, we always round it up. But before we set it off, you know, I want to talk about something with you, Kiki. Oh, yeah. Last week, we introduced the Connexon newsletters as a new partner for the Science Roundup. And, you know, Connexon has been publishing free weekly newsletters that curate the latest research and news in various fields of cell biology. For over 15 years, they've been doing this. This year's Roundup is sponsored by Neural Cell News, which is sent to more than 5,000 neuroscience researchers every week. Sign up at NeuralCellNews.com to keep current with everything that's happening in the neural field. And with that said, I'd like to jump right into the roundup with your segment of General Science News. Kiki, set it off. Boom! I'm going to set it off with some good news. This is very good news. We, all, we talk a lot about cancer deaths. Cancer is one of the top killers in the United States. It's said that, you know, one in four people knows someone or is affected by cancer. But new research out, research published by the American Cancer Society, researchers have found that there is a drop in death rates due to cancer. Death rates have dropped 25% since their peak in 1991. And this 25% drop means... 2.1 million fewer people died from cancer between 91 and 2014 than would have died if everything had stayed the same. That's just in the U.S. Just in the United States. That's just in the U.S. Wow. 2.1 million lives saved. A lot of souls. From cancer. And so they attribute this drop in death rate to a couple of things. One is reductions in smoking. 
the really hard work that people have done to get people to quit smoking, to make it harder to start smoking, has really had an impact on, on cancer deaths and also advances in early detection and treatment. And this is really, says Dr. Otis Brawley, the chief medical officer of the American Cancer Society, really a sign of the potential we have to reduce cancer's deadly toll. Continuing that success will require more clinical and basic research to improve early detection and treatment, because the earlier you catch it, the better the odds, as well as strategies to increase healthy behaviors nationwide. And this decline also has been fairly steady. So it's not like it's dropping in jumps and drops. It's a fairly steady decline over time by about 1.5% each year over the steady period. So now we have cancer death rates declining from 215 deaths per 100,000 people to currently 161 deaths per 100,000 people in 2014. And this is a reduction in four types of cancer, lung, breast, prostate, and colorectal. Those are the largest impact. So it's, this is great, great news. I mean, people are still dying from cancer, so it doesn't mean, hey, let's rest on our laurels. But like Brawley said, this is you know, a real sign that what we're doing is working and we really should up our efforts, keep doing what we've been doing, and hopefully the straw that broke cancer's back, maybe someday we'll find it near future yeah. i mean it, it looks like i guess peak cancer maybe we've reached peak cancer death yeah by percentage yeah. and maybe now uh, it's just gonna i hope it'll be a precipitous drop moving forward fingers crossed next thing we need to do is uh, the same for cardiovascular cardiopulmonary disease right all right i'm working on it. <laughs> get it get it <laughs> and then other good news ebola right before Zika, the big fear was Ebola. And now we, there is an experimental vaccine, RVSV Zebov, Z-E-B-O-V. This has been used experimentally in West Africa. 5,837 people in Guinea received a single shot of the vaccine just in their shoulder, little shot in the shoulder, none became infected with the virus 10 to 84 days after vaccination, according to the report from the researchers in December 22nd's Lancet. 100% protection. And their approach to vaccination is not just random people off the street. This was a ring vaccination approach. So people who were infected by Ebola, the people who received vaccines first were those immediately connected to those infected. So family members and contacts received the vaccine and then outwards. And you have the, the target individual who is the infection and then you vaccinate outward in a ring, a ring of people from there. And so among 4,500 people, this is in comparison, right? The people never vaccinated or who got a delayed vaccine, 23 of them contracted Ebola. So 23 people out of 4,500 versus zero out of 5,800 of those who are vaccinated. So thousands of people were looking at, you know, fairly good sample size, hopefully larger samples. These are preliminary results. So it's really good news. We don't know how long lasting the protection from the vaccine is going to be, but so far, so good. Yeah, this is really impressive. And I'm heartened by the pace. I think, I mean, I know Ebola has been a big deal for a long time, but, you know, I remember it wasn't so long ago we had that rash, that outburst, epidemic proportion Ebola. 
And I think that reinvigorated the research. It, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't even two years ago, right? No. So it makes me think that now with all this global attention on Zika, maybe well, the pace will be similar. It could be a year or less even before we have similar vaccines in play. Looking at families of viruses, looking at different ways that we can approach vaccinating for these emerging infectious diseases, you know, like Zika, it's remained really low on the radar for so long. Ebola also, it's low on the radar unless there's an outbreak. But more and more often, we're going to see things coming into, away from the third world countries into first world nations. And hopefully the science is at the stage where we're going to really be able to address things rapidly, rapid throughput science. So in that vein, you know, what's the future of science looking like? Who is going to take up the mantle of scientific research in the future? Who's interested? Well, a Pew Research Center analysis is the 2015 National Assessment of Educational Progress basically asked high school seniors about their interest in science. And they found that four in 10 high school seniors would like to have a job in the field. So four out of 10 high school graduating seniors might be interested. However, these sentiments vary by race and ethnicity. And so this is also a pattern that gets reflected in how well these students score in science. And so around 71% of seniors agree with the statement, I like science. But majorities of all major racial and ethnic groups report having a fondness for science. Asian and Pacific Islander high school students are the most likely to say this, while blacks are the least. And there are similar racial and ethnic differences when kids are asked whether they want a career in science. Six in 10 Asian and Pacific Islander high school seniors say yes. 64% say it's important that they do well in the subject to be able to get a job. 45% of whites 40% Hispanic, and 39% of Blacks say similar. And no more than half of these respective groups agree that they need to do well in science classes to get the job they want. <laughs> so I don't, there's some kind of disconnect there. So it's a mixed picture of really how students are doing from fourth to eighth grade to 12th graders and in the sciences. And then from there, you know, it, it kind of, when fourth graders start performing poorly in the sciences, that tends to continue as they progress through the ages. And so some experts have traced the relatively low share of Blacks and Hispanics working in STEM professions to these differences that appear at a very early age. So some place to approach educational interests. Yeah, you know, my dis I think there's a lot of disconnects for me there. I'm not looking at the study. My question would be right at the outset when they ask all these questions, do you like science? Do you want a career in science? I think they should maybe ask also, what is your understanding yeah. of what science is? I think when people talk about science, I don't even know. I wonder what a young, maybe a young kid today would be, think of science and they think of like, their phone or something, and they think, yeah, I'd like to make an iPhone. I'd like to invent the end product. But they don't see all the bits and pieces that make up the science, the discovery, the question, all that stuff leading up to the, the iPhone, I think is maybe lost on them. So when you ask someone what they want to be when they grow up, I don't think science is a profession. Science is the process. They really got to be more clear about what these kids under appreciation of the question is, and maybe that's the problem. They don't even know about science enough to know whether they like it. 
Yeah. And that's something that historically these surveys, not just addressing students, but just addressing people in general. The question is, do you know a scientist? And most people will say no, when in fact they actually do know scientists. They just don't realize that what the people do is considered science. You're right. There is a disconnect there. So hands on, hands on practice. Get more kids in labs, have more labs in schools, not just looking at the books, but actually doing it. You know, I'm excited about the maker movement because it's like the iPhone. It's like this magic piece of technology, right. you know, with like the maker movement. It's like, oh, I've got this little component and that component, or I'm going to take this whole thing apart and I'm going to rebuild it and I'm going to rewire it. And it's learning how things are put together. Yeah, for sure. You know, my kid hates science. I say, you like science? You want to be a scientist? He says, I hate science. (laughs) And then we do something a little bit. I say, you know, that's a little bit of science. He says, oh, okay. I still hate science, but, you know, at least I like Legos. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my son, he's like, I love science. I want to be a scientist. And then he's like, I'm going to be a YouTube star. And I'm like, oh, man. (laughs) You got to start somewhere. Yeah. And my last story is actually really, I think, very exciting for 50% of the population. So many women suffer from PMS, premenstrual syndrome. And once a month, you get really cranky or you have cramps or bloating. It just there's, there's stuff going on and everybody's like, oh, it's this thing. It's hormone related, whatever. There's also something called premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And that is mood swings and anxiety and depression and... Women experience debilitating sadness, hopelessness, irritability, and the PMS syndromes. It's just, it's awful. It's like, I can't function for a few days. It just, I can't even go on, right? But not all women suffer from this. And so the question has been, what's going on? So in the past, they've looked at hormone levels. People with premenstrual disorder have the same hormone levels as those women who have PMS, but they're reacting differently. They're having more of the symptoms, worse symptoms. And the question is why? And so a new study published in the journal Molecular Psychiatry suppressed and then added hormones, estrogen and progesterone, back into women with premenstrual dysphoric disorder and also a control group. And so they suppressed the hormones, turned them off. And when they did, The women saw the symptoms disappear. They didn't have the dysphoric disorder. And when they added the hormones back, their symptoms came back. The control group, no change whatsoever. And so what this is confirming to the researchers is that people with dysphoric disorder are more sensitive to hormones. So then they looked at white blood cells from each group because you can't go into the brain necessarily. So it's like, hey, let's look at white blood cells because they express a lot of the same genes as brain cells. And they found a gene complex where the genes are expressed differently in women with dysphoric disorder compared to the control group. And these differences were in a complex that determines cellular response to the environment, which environment includes stressors, sex hormones, like cortisol, estrogen, progesterone. And some genes were overexpressed while others were underexpressed and exposure to hormones altered gene expression. And so this molecular cellular response could be the reason why these women are more sensitive to hormones than other women. And, you know, basically it's putting a molecular pathway behind these very physical symptoms where women are like, I feel like I'm crazy. You're telling me I'm crazy because my hormones are the same as everybody else. 
but what's going on? And now there's finally, you know, this, we're getting at the smoking gun. It's great. So, I mean, I have a vested interest in this, clearly. I can admit that. But I want to know, my question is, okay, great mechanism. Now, how do we turn it off, Kiki? Talk to your boy, Dr. Goldman. Right. And tell him what's the intervention. Because what I would worry about is if you try and block the hormone activity in those receptors, there may be some secondary effects, you know, like bone loss or something else that happens with you know, menopause and the reduction of endogenous hormone production. So understanding the mechanism, half the battle, but is there any way that we can intercede here to, come on, bring you guys back to life? Some of you suffering from this PMDD, it can be really crippling, as you say. can be very crippling. And, and yeah, I mean, right now, the way that we work with medications is like sledgehammer. There's always going to be some kind of side effect. And you don't want really terrible side effects to get rid of something that's really terrible. You want to minimize the side effects. Hopefully someday it'll get worked out. It's piece by piece, the little jigsaw puzzle, right? You're right. You can't have it all right now. I'm impatient. Every once in a while, I'm like, I need that little cave and I'm just going to go in there (laughs) and I'm going to be just going to, I'm going to isolate myself. (laughs) For the sake of your peers. For the, for the sake of everyone around me, I'm just going to go be alone for a while. (laughs) Yeah, I do that sometimes too. Maybe we should all do that more often. Right? Yeah. Little alone time. Never hurt anybody. But you know what? Now's your time. Tell me some stories. Now's my time. I'll tell you a story. And it's not about being alone. It's about a partnership. This is NICEF and PGP. They're announcing availability of a unique new stem cell resource for scientific research. So NICEF, that's the New York Stem Cell Foundation Research Institute, and the Personal Genomes Project have announced the availability of this resource to scientists around the world. The stem cells resulting from this collaboration, beginning in 2013 between the two organizations, are now going to be available for everybody's use. Now, the unique thing about most of these stem cell lines is that they're fully or partially sequenced, making them especially useful in drug development research as well as in other research pursuits like gene-specific disease or other things that are really can tap into the multiplicity of genomes that are present in the human population. And these lines are going to be made available to all types of organizations, academic, pharmaceutical, the independent research consortia. That sounds very cloak and dagger. (laughs) Nonprofit institutes, the whole rigmarole, everybody can have them. You know, you want to come off the street, you want these, maybe not off the street, but if you have an organized group of scientists, you can get at these cells. So what happened here, how they got came about this is these PGP participants. So just to let you know, the PGP, it's founded by George Church. Hmm. And the participants there were asked to provide skin samples that were then incorporated into the NICEF. They have this machine. It's called the NICEF Global Stem Cell Array. It's an automated robotic technology developed specifically by NICEF to standardize and scale up the production of stem cell lines, and the differentiated cell types that you can make from them. So this is like this autonomous way, kind of idiot-proof way, taking the operator out of the equation so you can really standardize lines, but also you can scale up to do, you know, hundreds, thousands of patients. And the PGP, meanwhile, is tracking the participants' genomic data, their medical histories, the body microbiome, and hundreds of other traits, which in combination with the stem cell lines provide a really unique and powerful, robust resource to help identify 
not just the causes of disease, but also their cures and ways of preventing them. So the founder, George Church, to quote him, founder of PGP, this milestone enables PGP as the first truly open access human biodata resource and as a partner with NIST, FDA, NIH, ENCODE, mm. all these acronyms to now put diverse stem cells in the hands of researchers and students worldwide to develop new tissue and organ systems, to test new therapies and determine the diagnostic significance of millions of previously unknown DNA variations. So pretty much they're going to solve all the world's problems with this one venture, it seems. George Church is, he's, he's always been a very forward thinking individual and he's either going through stuff like this help solve all humanity's problems <laughs> or he's going to be a part of you know the future of humanity's problems i don't know <laughs> yeah exactly either he's gonna solve them or he's gonna transcend them save himself yeah or maybe who knows if we can turn him to the dark side not that we want to but he could be a real problem we might have to take out george <laughs> oh george watch out george oh, george. george be careful babe <laughs> watching you buddy well, you know, cells are great, but it would be greater if we could do the whole stem cell regenerative medicine thing. It'd be really awesome, maybe, if we could do it minus the cells. Why? Because the cells kind of have a mind of their own. They can go rogue. Cells, you know, as we all know, are the basis of cancer. Cells are alive, and they're hard to control. Life finds a way, as Jeff Goldblum famously said in that movie. But you know, this may not be a problem anymore if the dreams of this American and Chinese research group uh, can come to fruition. They've developed synthetic cardiac stem cells that could have the same therapeutic impact as human stem cells with the added benefit of reducing the risk of graft rejection, tumorigenicity, some unforeseen event derived from rogue cells in your body. So, you know, typical cell therapy consists of injecting these stem cells to restore damaged or diseased tissues, organs. And nowadays we can take stem cells out of tissue. We can make pluripotent stem cells from your skin. We can do them by cloning. We can differentiate stem cells into every cell type in the body. And we can do all kinds of like engineering controls maybe to mitigate the risk involved in these cells. But, you know, it's still a risk. And the expansion and in vitro culture of these cells can introduce all kinds of unknown unknowns into these cultures. And they can cause tumors, especially when you're injecting them by the millions into these damaged tissues. So, you know, in cardiology, it's particularly important because when uh, you have a heart attack, the tissue's just no good and doesn't regenerate itself. So we're trying to find a way to clear that scar, regenerate necrotic heart tissue. But the cells that they inject typically now, they've been drawn from bone marrow aspirate. They've been taken from the heart itself from biopsy. Pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes have been injected. But, you know, it's never really worked that well. There have been a lot of encouraging signs, although the intercalation of these cells into the system in monkeys most recently showed some potential for, like, non-fatal arrhythmias. So there's still some risk involved, but maybe not so much if we use these synthetic cells. Researchers at UNC, University of North Carolina in the U.S., and in China's affiliated hospital of Zhengzhou University, they developed synthetic stem cells, okay? They fabricated these cell-mimicking microparticles from PLGA, that's polylactic coglycolic acid. It's biodegradable, biocompatible, a polymer that can be loaded with human growth factor proteins and then coated with this human cardiac stem cell membrane, the protein that makes up the membrane. 
And these cell-like structures can then be grafted into damaged heart in model animals, and they improve the recovery of the tissue. To quote Dr. Kay Chang of North Carolina University, the synthetic cells operate much the same way a deactivated vaccine works. Their membranes allow them to bypass the immune response, bind to cardiac tissue, release the growth factors, and generate repair. But they cannot amplify that by themselves. So you get the benefits of stem cell therapy without the risks. So this looks like a, maybe a, a hack. Maybe we can get around the actual cell part of cell therapy. I don't know, Kiki. What do you say? I think my biggest issue is the fact that they're calling these cells synthetic stem cells because they're not going to replicate. They're not going to bioamplify. They're not, you know, they're not doing the stem cell stuff. So it's just call them microparticles that are, I mean, call them what they are. I mean, they're making up this like fancy, sensational synthetic stem cells, you know, and I, I started reading this story like, oh my gosh, did somebody actually really make a real cell? Because that's something they're trying to work on synthetic yeast yeast cells. George Church. I know. The diabolical George Church is actually doing this research. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, that's my biggest issue. But yes, I think that this is neat because if you can specialize and this, you could tailor the cells, these microparticles for different traits, different patients, different diagnoses. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's like microparticle protein drug delivery yeah, I system. Call it, I call I it a growth jelly. Growth Let's jelly. just call it what it is. But yeah. Hey, bottom line is this stuff could go into the clinic this tomorrow. So good for them. Yeah. Good for it's them. very exciting. And we've got to work on your semantics. Maybe your PR campaign was a little aggressive there with the synthetic stem cells thing, but good, good for you. Yes. All right. <laughs> By the way, I should concede that may sound condescending. I wish I had some of that jelly in my research program. This is uh, important work, and I have the utmost respect for it, Kiki. You just send them an email. You go collaborate, (laughs) Dalen. I'm trying to avoid them (laughs) sending me a bunch of emails, hate emails. You know, it's good work. No, we're giving props. There we go. Yes, I'm giving props for sure. All right. So more props to be given out. Now we're going into another group there in nature, high-level study I love these guys. These are the guys. They're George Church-esque in that they're like, ah, you know, we want to do something, but nobody knows anything about even what the thing is. So we're just going to have to invent it. (laughs) So this is using stem cells to grow stomachs. It's underappreciated, but like gastrointestinal disease, it's a major issue, especially in the developed world, because God knows we don't have real problems. So There's a lot of like IBS and other type of more serious gastric issues and Crohn's, a million things out there that are starting to become more and more appreciated. But scientists looking to understand stomach diseases, they kind of are lacking models. They're lacking a way to investigate these diseases, especially in this modern era of kind of patient-specific disease with the diversity of the genetic code. In a new study featured in Nature, researchers from Cincinnati Children's Hospital we're able to grow human tissues in a laboratory using samples taken from the corpus fundus region of the stomach, okay? So this is what I'm talking about. Before they could even look at disease, they had to understand how the corpus fundus region of the stomach was even developed. There wasn't a lot of developmental biology in this study. This same group a couple of years ago was able to successfully cultivate another part of the stomach known as the antrum which produces hormones for the organ, 
Uh, they were able to do that, but there was a lot more known about the development of the Antrim. Here, they were totally in the dark. You know, at first, when they first got into it, they had a difficult time, as you would expect carrying their studies, because there wasn't any information, as I said, how this part of the stomach was formed during embryogenesis. So they delved into the system in laboratory mice, and they kind of figured out a whole genetic pathway that was essential for development of the fundus. They identified this pathway, which is Wnt beta catenin show that it's responsible and necessary for directing the formation of the corpus fundus region in mice. Then they went into a stem cell human embryonic stem cell organoid type system, manipulated the beta-catenin pathway in the dish so that they could jumpstart the development of fundus organoids. Okay, And they were able to refine this process with multiple rounds of experiments. That allowed them to identify other signaling pathways that are linked to the development of the fundus. And through this series of events, essentially creating a whole body of understanding of organogenesis in the stomach region, they developed a very robust protocol that they said within six weeks wow. can get them from human pluripotent stem cells to grow gastric fundus tissues in the laboratory. They put the fun back in fundus. Got it in there. Yeah. They put the gas back in the gastric. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They did. I don't know what that means. Not, <laughs> not as cool as yours. Stepping on the gas. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. That works. But they're doing stuff. I mean, these are. this takes a lot of courage. Most mm. people, they come to it, they say, oh, well, we don't even know how that happens, like, in vivo. Where do I even start? Do, right? These guys, they say, okay, one more challenge. Now let's grow stomachs. <laughs> yeah, okay, now <laughs> on to the next thing. Speaking of the next thing and staying within the vein of organoids and especially in light of the conversation we're about to have with Dr. Song, this last story is particularly pertinent. This is a study out of the Yanish lab. You know, Rudy Yanish, godfather of science. Him and George Church together could be like a good, if they wanted to make a godfather type movie of science, they, they're a little, they're, Yanish, he's so serious and grave. Church, I've painted the picture of him as menacing. I don't know right. why. He's a really nice guy. But <laughs> that's my uh, sojourn into the Godfather analogy. Now let's talk about science again. Yanish, the Godfather, he uh, is working on organoids like everyone else, but he kind of took it a step further. There's, these cerebral organoids are kind of limited in how they develop. But first, let's just say that the organoids in mouse and human are going to be really different because mouse and human have very different patterns of brain development. You know, the expansion of the cerebral neocortex is thought to be the foundation for all the unique intellectual abilities in humans. So these are things that don't happen in mouse. Mice don't podcast. They don't podcast <laughs> no, like us, girl. No. They don't got the brains. They don't got the neocortex for that <laughs> stuff. So, you know, it's tough to model certain elements of disease in a mouse because they don't have the same, all that brain. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So... Everyone's after, how can we get the human model going? And a big part of the human brain is the shape, is the folds. It's the growth of this outer cortex region. And then the complex folding that takes place, it's in all those folds that all our little thoughts are hidden. You know, so the goal here is to try and get organoid modeling of the brain that's more close to physiological development. And the way that Rudy Anish's group here did that is by deleting P10, okay? P10, tumor suppressor. Granted, this is not something we're going to do therapeutically, but it's important because they showed by decreasing P10, they vastly increased 
the proliferation of neural progenitors in these cerebral organoids. And that massive proliferation induces the physical expansion of the tissue and then the folding. And this not just folding because they were folding all their because they were growing so fast, but this is folding in a really organized in vitro model of human corticogenesis, okay? And this was not enough, you know, in order to show that this developmental process was indeed close to how human development went about and the specific folding led to the higher brain structures, they infected these cerebral organoids with Zika and showed that the Zika virus was able to impair this cortical growth and the folding. So not only is it a way of introducing a new cerebral organoid model that's closer to the physical structure of the brain, but it also is bona fide in that it's a good model for looking at Zika virus infection. Stuff like this is so exciting. I mean, being able to look at the human brain without taking the brain out of somebody's head. You know? <laughs> this, this has been one of the challenges of neuroscience yeah. forever. It's how do you get at these questions, you know, without it being tissue that's dead, without it being tissue that's not fully developed. And suddenly we're getting there and then having Zika be something that it's like a proving ground. <laughs> yeah, is, I love yeah. it. I love it. It's like, oh, is it brain? Let's throw some Zika up. Oh, it's brain. Zika's crushing it. Well, throw Zika at it. Oh, my goodness. Zika's the new assay. And more than that, you know, I think, I guess we should talk about this with Dr. Song. I feel like yeah. we're in this era where everything's moving forward so fast. And all these different lines of research are converging to really lead to some really quick turnaround on these important scientific questions. Absolutely. So hopefully you bring that stuff up. (laughs) Hopefully we'll get to these wonderful, wonderful conversation points in our interview, which is coming up right about now. This roundup is over. Remember the links to all these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. Of course, they can be emailed directly to you by signing up for the newsletter. Now it's time for us to get into our interview. With our interview today focused on the brain and neural stem cells, I'd like to give you a reminder from our friends at Stem Cell Technologies to check out their really cool wall chart. This is a new wall chart, not the one that we've been talking about on previous episodes. This wall chart is focused on neural stem cells. The wall chart provides an overview of how neural stem cells can be derived and cultured from various tissue sources and differentiated into specific neuronal and glial subtypes, along with lots of other topics. This wall chart was created in partnership with Nature Neuroscience and was co-authored by Clive Svensson. Stem Cell Podcast listeners can get their free copies. I love the free stuff. We know you like the free stuff, especially postdocs out there. Loving the free stuff. Get another chart. Get another wall chart. www.stemcell.com slash get NSC wall chart. Get NSC wall chart. That's right. Free one mailed right to you. All you got to do is sign up. All right. So our guest today is Dr. Hung Jun Song, Director, Stem Cell Program at Johns Hopkins University. The research in the Song Laboratory focuses on understanding mechanisms regulating neural stem cells and neurogenesis in the mammalian brain. Using neural stem cells as tools, the team explores molecular mechanisms underlying mental disorders with the goal of developing novel strategies for treatment of degenerative neurological disorders. And he recently published a review regarding Zika virus, what's known, how stem cells can help. And that's what we're going to talk with him about right now. Welcome to the show, Dr. Song. Thank you. 
You're welcome. It's wonderful to have you join us. I know you're almost snowed in where you yes. are. <laughs> Why is it coming? Oh, okay. Well, before the snow en encases you completely, I hope that we can have a really great conversation about your work. Can you give us a little bit more detail about your lab and its focus? So I was trained as a developmental biologist, uh, really before the concept of stem cell biology. So we study new development, and now we realize that many of them actually belong to the stem cell biology. So, so I was trained with uh, Rusty Gage, working on Daniel Stem Cells at the Salk Institute. I set up my own lab at Johns Hopkins in 2002. The main focus of the lab for the past 14 years has been to use stem cells as sort of a model system to understand the basic principles of new development. And then we're also interested in understanding how dysregulation of this process may lead to brain disorders. Majority of study has been done in mouse, uh, using as in vivo mouse model. And then of course, as many others, about 10 years ago, were so intrigued by the induced poropotent stem cell technology. And we thought that's the entry point to understand the human neural development because simply there's a very limited access to the tissue to study human neurogenesis new development. So we studied about 10 years ago to use induced proponent stem cells model study human development. And we always try to contract that with the mouse development, but we always have a goal to understand how human development could be different from mouse, but also how a sort of uh, different insults can impact the nerve development. So for many years, we've been studying genetic insult to look at the risk factors for schizophrenia, for autism, and other disorders. And only recently, actually, only in, in last year at the beginning, we started to study insult from environmental insult. And that was the case of Zika virus. Wow. So the brain, as you well know, I think a lot of people appreciate as a final frontier, you know, whether we'll ever be able to understand some of the mechanisms, biological mechanisms that underlie consciousness thought. Those are all, you know, in part philosophical questions. But I think, as you were alluding to, the stem cell system has led to amazing innovations, right? And the problem has always been, in my view, that the mouse doesn't have a brain like a human. So it's tough to model these diseases and these developmental insults in a mouse because they don't have the higher learning places in the brain, etc. I'm not a neurodevelopmental yeah. biologist. Please yeah. forgive me. I'm talking to two giants in the field. I guess my, the question or the, the observation I make is that now recently we're getting even further or closer to these models with the organoids. Can you talk to us a little bit about the organoids and how they're giving us literally another dimension on neural development, but also processes in the brain? Well, exactly. I think that's just an amazing sort of development in the stem cell field. People probably not envision uh, 10 years ago. So, of course, uh, the early goals in the stem cells, in human stem cells as well, is try to get the right cell type and study them in detail. So for that purpose, you actually want as pure as possible uh, individual cell type. And then as time goes along, people realize that as any anything, I mean, for stem cells or others in the intact system, they need to have neighbors. They have to talk to their neighbors. They have to work together. So basically, you need to have the right environment. And that has been very difficult to recreate because we simply don't understand all the factors out there. In my view, the next frontier of stem cell biology is organogenesis. 
is now make it a different cell type. It's actually make an organ, make a functional organ, and mimicking endogenous physiology. And that has been the, really the breakthrough in the last few years, uh, people to make these all kinds of mini organs or organoids, right? So you have kidney, last week just published the stomach and the brain. I think that's just an incredible science. In a way now, not only we can look at individual cell types, we can look at how they develop, how they form the structure, and just look like uh, in vivo. And finally, now we have a system to understand human development in a controlled fashion. I think that's the difference from pathology. We can look at snapshot, what happens. You can look at the PET scan others, but they're all non-invasive. Here you can establish causality. I think that's the most interesting question. Well, just to elaborate on that then in terms of the challenges moving forward, if we can do the best we can now to get, let's say, even a fetal or neonate maybe brain structurally. That's hard. Kind of raise, yes, even that and being able to meet that enormous challenge. I guess the next challenge are my, I wouldn't call it a criticism, but what I would wonder about is then how do you then overlay the disease development, for, especially for diseases that the onset is later on in adulthood. How do you, I mean, I'm sure you've thought a lot about this and you have a relatively good answer. How do you kind of exert those later onset disease modeling ideas on a stem cell system? I've always wondered that because they're embryonic. How do you kind of yep. do that? There are multiple thoughts. We've been thinking about that a lot. And one idea is probably most important is compared to the species. The human has a different genome. They have a different physiology compared to mouse. If you study human cell physiology, some of the process may be conserved, so, which means the classic neurodegenerative disorders may already have some hint at developmental stages where you can see an endophenotype as something you can catch on. I'll give you one example, sort of linked to organoid is this Alzheimer's disease, right? So AD, of course, is degenerative neurological disease. And people have been trying to model with mouse for many years with some success. But apparently, this is not my field. And apparently, you don't really get all the pathology of human AD in mouse model. Let's say you have aggregates, but you don't have tall pathology or others. Now, in the last couple of years, people actually published that in 2D cultures, you don't get that either. But if you make a 3D, brain organoid, you actually can see all that pathology, even in early stage of development. So what that says is maybe the culture condition is so harsh, it's where they have some stress factors where you push this faster than in vivo. So that's one idea. Of course, ultimately, people actually want to do is study this in a more sort of physiological level. And one idea is actually to make some kind of chimeric, but not really a sort of big chimeric. The question then, for example, you can make an organoid, you can make a six-layer human cortex in organoid, but they don't have vascularization. You can't grow them long enough. Our organoid model, we can mimic all the way to second trimester, but beyond that, we have a hollow core, the cell die. So the question then, can you actually uh, vascularize them? One of ideas, actually at the Keystone meeting, we're doing that as well, is actually can you just transplant those into mouse brain and then let the mouse do the job. Eventually, you may be able to age them in an animal model. Now you can really study degeneration. Maybe if you make dopaminergic neurons in the subgenagra, human neurons in mouse, and then you age them. There's a lot of ideas floating around people are trying. 
That last idea has got to be a real peach with the IRB committee, or I guess the IACUC committee, the Animal Use Committee. So people have that before. So I was uh, ASIC committees. Actually, I was um, part of the ASIC Institute at Hopkins. So we talked about actually 10 years ago, and the, the people concern was, if you have enough mouse, a human you are in mouse, would the mouse think like human? <laughs> so eventually what people does is set up limit. What's the percentage of neurons in mouse brain can be human? If it's below that, people think that's not going to happen. That's their protocols already proved. But people are pushing the limit. So they are doing where they make a whole, I don't know, kidney, right? In pig with all human cells mm. or make a whole brain. I think that is testing the limit. Yeah, kidneys a far cry from a brain, though, when you're talking about <laughs> talking about the more controversial side of things. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of uh, your research, and especially with the developmental side of things, is that how looking at the development of the brain and the dysregulation of stuff, is that how you decided to start looking at the Zika virus? In some degree. Uh, so we know exactly the problem of study uh, neurodegeneration. We feel there's a way to push for that, but we're not in the best position to do that. But on the other hand, to use organoid or even 2D cultures to study neurodevelopment were exactly the right place. We have everything in place. We can study how it can sort of impact the development because we know very little of that. We developed actually the organoid system not for Zika initially. We developed to just say, can we somehow understand human-specific features of neurodevelopment? Because it's already known, for example, studies by multiple groups to show that why the human cortex is bigger than mouse is because they actually have new stem cells. Mouse have very few of them. So there's a human sort of specific and enriched structures where we simply don't see that in mouse. So that was the initial goal. Can we make a human organoid mimic that? We actually spent quite a few years to develop that. And there's quite a few interesting story of that. Uh, that the major breakthrough actually was to make bioreactors. And that turned out to be done by three high school students in my lab. Go high school students, yes. <laughs> they just come in, they're fearless. They, you tell them we want to do this, and they just find a way we never thought about. Nice. That, that's the best part. They use 3D printing, just print a bioreactor instead of we, we buy them, like thousands of bucks or something. So once at that time, actually, it was we sort of have a system where we can study new development, and we want to study genetic insult for microcephaly. So we're looking for genes people identified. And our thought was, it's really the question of causality, because people have done population genetics, and they can find the genes, and they believe that the genes can cause microcephaly, but they're never sure. Especially, in many cases, if you knock out the gene in mouse, the mouse brain, actually, is very similar. They're a little bit smaller. They're nowhere near like the human. It's much smaller. So there's a question, of course, is a mouse. So they, they are different. The second is possible this gene is not really causal. There's some other environmental factors or there are other sort of genetic insult hidden which cause the phenotype. So we saw the organoid provide a way to prove the causality. So that was at the beginning of 2016. And then the Zika become the news, right? Because it's everywhere. I never paid attention to Zika before because I saw just a virus. What actually really made the trick was the World Health Organization actually made this as a global health emergency. And then you saw the news on CNN, all the newspapers. And the question was there was, it's actually, to me, it was a scientific question. The question was, does Zika cause microcephaly? 
because there's many theory at the time, right? They're blaming the water in Brazil or because they put pesticides in water, right? So there's all kinds of additional factors can cause that. And then the question was, if Zika does not cause microcephaly, it's not, then Zika is not a big deal. Basically, just like any mosquito bite, you got a flu-like symptom. Even 80% of people has nothing. But if you cause a microcephaly, that's become a global housing emergency because once we have a baby who has microcephaly, and that's the whole life care, right? They actually estimate it takes about $10 million to care one, and the, the cost is enormous. So then suddenly we saw we actually have a perfect system to ask the causality question because we can simplify them. So that's how the stem cell actually come into play because you can't really do that in humans. You can't really easily get access to fetal tissues to do this. A stem cell, you have unlimited supply, but also they are much well controlled. So you can really ask the question. Uh, clearly, we're not the only one who thought about this because there's a flurry of paper came out and around the same time. We published our first paper in March, I think. This is amazing sort of satisfaction to myself. Was this the first time our result was confirmed, repeated by many others within like months? There's so many papers, everybody show exactly the same thing. And I think is this really should credit to the investment of decades on stem cell biology, because there's so many people work on that, and so many people make this possible. And if we don't have that, then it takes a long time for people to know how to culture these cells, how to try that. And then that will take years to get where we are now. That's an amazing point to make about the usefulness of stem cell research and where it's come after so many years, after the George Bush basically clamping down on the number of stem cell lines that there were available to where we are now and how the attitudes have changed and what we're capable of doing. And so an example like the use of stem cells for investigating Zika virus and, the, and what it's allowed, I mean, this is going to be a great case study for the usefulness of stem cells in research moving forward. Exactly. So the field sort of transformed the idea along, right? The initial idea, of course, is all the ideas of cell replacement therapy. I think we're, we're getting close to that, but still that's a very hard to hit a target. Then, then people realize, well, we can use that screen for drugs, and eventually maybe we can go through the drug development process much more efficiently. But clearly the lowest bar, actually, the application of stem cell is testing toxicity. And this is really exactly the case where I think actually the data from the stem cell data from multiple labs actually really contributed to the CDC's decision. Basically, they announced Zika caused microcephaly in April. And this is actually unprecedented because they made the conclusion very early without clinical data. And the reason is actually they have the many pieces of evidence, including the stem cell data to show this biological possible and mechanism and make them confident, make decision. And I think this is the case where basic science actually made an impact quickly. And so I'm very happy for that because normally it takes decades for whatever. Decades. Yeah. On that note, the, the stem cells kind of elucidated. They showed definitively, as you said, the virus was causing the phenotype. They'll be useful in kind of discerning the mechanism, maybe viral entry, as we're seeing these papers come out. But do you think ultimately the stem cells, there's going to be a kind of handoff to kind of like immunology vaccination? Or do you think that there's a way that stem cells will play a role in actually curing the disease or protecting from it? 
or, you know, recovery, if that's possible for microcephaly? Or what do you think about that? What's the role of stem cells moving forward? There are multiple roles. I can tell you my personal view. So my first view, when we started on Zika virus, my thought was not really going for therapy or anything. My thought actually was a lesson we learned from the cancer field. So in the cancer field, and people actually learn so much about cell biology and oncology because of one bird virus, the sock virus. The sock kinase was from the bird. It caused tumor. And we never see a mutation in human cancer, right? But, but we learn so much of that because that serves as a tool, an entry point to understand the basic biology of cancer. And I thought that was the same parallel here, is the Zika virus actually provide an entry point to understand human development. Because we know it somehow screwed up the human neural stem cells, and this actually allows to understand how do they do that. And once we understand how to do that, Basically, you dissemble everything, you actually learn from it how they normally build it. So that was our motivation, to use as entry port as a tool to understand normal human development, because we think that's fundamental. Once we understand that, we can study other insults. So that's one of them. But the next thing actually is we realized when we published the first paper is now suddenly we actually have a model in our hand. We can use that to screen for drugs. We can screen for drugs to, for neuroprotective antiviral drugs, and that may be the way actually to eventually can translate the clinic very quickly. Multiple group actually take this approach where the effect is very dramatic. You infect the neural stem cells with virus and they die or they got infected and then that become a high super screen. So that multiple groups have been using so-called repurposed screen, the screen FDA-approved drugs, clinical trial, late-stage drugs. And that's a way where you can sort of shortcut the sort of the drug development process and move them more closer. And I heard some of the drugs are already in clinical trial. So, so this is really one way. And uses stem cells as a platform to, for drug development. And the other thing is sort of it's in the long run, of course, is maybe stem cell as any degenerative neurological disease or epilepsy or sort of microcephaly, and there may be cell replacement. But to me, that's sort of a more risky and more downstream. And there's actually many immediate use to take the bunch of stem cells where we can sort of uh, fight against the Zika. Things moved so quickly in the last year or two in advancing our understanding. I mean, do you think it's going to be exponential moving forward? Or do you think we've kind of hit a pace of research where there are a number of labs working on Zika virus using stem cells as their mode of study? And it's just kind of going to keep moving. Do you have any insight on how it's going to keep moving forward from here? I'm actually really very much surprised at the beginning. This is actually how many labs now started doing this. And that actually says something is actually as a field in general. I think it's really the early investment in the stem cell paid off in this case, because there are many labs now know how to grow the human stem cells, know how to differentiate them. And it turned out this is the case actually is so easy to get a result because everybody who put in a virus, because you can buy the virus now, commercial available, whenever who put in a virus, you see the same phenotype because that make it much easier to work with and a huge effect. So I think this partially attract many people to work in this field. And that's why within six months, there's hundreds of paper actually published. And our first paper we published in May, by the end of last year, it was cited 200 times. 
<laughs> that, wow. That's how many people are actually working on that and already published on that, right? I hope to see. And there's more and more. Uh, clearly, I think we're just seeing the beginning where we look at a very early stage of newer stem cells, how they're attacked by the uh, Zika virus. There are many questions. For example, I mentioned this could be a way to study normal human development. I think the field is switching to sort of uh, look at other aspects. For example, we don't really know other, for example, uh, Guillain-Barre, how that happens. That may be able to model with that. And people already studied the model that in the sperm to say the man, when they infected, why the virus actually stayed there for over six months and caused sort of problems. The other one I think is as important is now that clinical data come out and showing that even for the babies born in Brazil, in Puerto Rico, they are not by any clinical definition, they are microcephaly at birth. They can develop microcephaly postnatally or they actually have a lot of neurological problems afterwards. So what that says is there's a lot of impact on the Zika infection. We have only seen the tip of iceberg. There are many things we can study in the human system with stem cells. Not only look at neurogenesis, but look at neurodevelopment, look at synapse formation, look at many features. And also now from animal studies show that the cells not only infect the nervous system, it also screwed up other parts of the body. That's the beauty of stem cells. You can turn them into many different tissues and study them. How they're going to divide, where they're going to go. Yeah. What were you going to say, Dalen? I was thinking on that note, the, you know, I know this is outside your field, but this surge in these papers on organoids, it's like you just said, the fundus last week and all these organoid, organoid, this, organoid, that. Do you think that portends a lot of other like irritable bowel in the case of the fundus? Are people going to start using stem cells for the same way? I mean, they are, but can we expect the same? It seems like the returns on Zika were so short. You had to be like you said, you started less than a year ago and all of a sudden we have drugs that are candidates. Are we, can we expect to see the same kind of pace, for instance, IBS or, or diseases that other organoid might inform? Or do you think it's the global health crisis that really spurred this urgency and quick pace? I think the problem to me were two factors. One of them is really is the global health emergency, because this is the way everybody talk about, everybody care about, and it really impact many people, right? So either you have somebody is going to have a baby or you travel to some place for a meeting, you worry about that. I think that affects sort of our scientists. But the second is really the degree of robustness of the phenotype. I think that make a difference. It's for any field, if the experiment is too difficult to do, and people is going to take more effort, and people hesitating, and they also take time. But if the experiment is very easy to do, and the effect is very robust, then everybody have their own ideas. They come in, they try different things. They have a different background, a different way to attack the question. And that's how the field can move very, very fast. And that can be said for IPS, right? Clearly, everybody thinks it's very important but it's so reproducible. Many people, everybody can make the IPS. And that's why the field is really just growing even now, right? I think this is the case where it's also the robustness uh, made a difference. I'm not sure you can continue this pace because the downside of that is people publish so quickly. We don't like that, for example. Yeah, and there's also been a more rapid review procedure as well so that the papers can get out. So maybe things aren't getting adequately reviewed at the same time. That's one factor, right? People just try to uh, sort of speed out the paper. But the other one from yeah. from scientists' point of view, we always want to address a complete question. We want to 
do the job, we want to validate, we want to make sure we understand the system. And that takes time. And I think that's actually very important. Is we probably need to slow down a little bit and do a better job, everybody, and try to publish solid work instead of just rushing. I hope that will come. I think there's always phase going up, then steady, then we'll see. Pace of publication, tenure. Everyone wants tenure. Let's go. <laughs> Get those papers out. <laughs> yeah, not only the tenure, right? The, the student need to graduate. The postdoc need to find a job. There's all pressure on that. But that's also sad is the field has to be ready to respond. I think the stem cell field did really well this time because everybody just rise to the challenge and did not drop the ball. Well, do you think Zika is going to be worse this coming year? Just your personal opinion. I know you're not an epidemiologist, but just based on how close you've been to the work, if we not slow down the pace, but we come to a measured pace of publication, but the incidence of Zika is probably going to spread, would you say? I'm hoping that the vaccine is going to just work magically, quickly, right? So that will solve the problem. I'm not a virologist, and based on my understanding, talk with people, is also this phase. So initially, you starting, then you need to accumulate. You have enough people to get infected, then you spread it out. And then once you reach a critical, everybody got infected, then they go downhill. Uh, clearly, in the case of U.S., right, we're just starting because Florida has some cases, Texas have some cases, we're just out of studying. And we hope this year we're not going to have a problem. We're better prepared. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, going to conferences and as a scientist choosing where you're going to go to a conference. You currently are in a snowy Olymp <laughs> Olympic Peninsula. <laughs> are you or your lab members, are you going to the Caribbean? Are you going to Central America? Are you choosing conferences where Zika might be a concern? It does. Uh, basically, now you went for conference already organized in Caribbean, in Mexico in Puerto Rico, they actually send a note. Many of the meetings, they do that now. They send them to tell them there's a travel alert, and they, they decide. Some meetings actually are even canceled. So uh -huh. it does make a difference because we just don't know enough about this bug. It keep turning bad news. That's just bad, right? Yeah. We've spoken with some other uh, researchers and learning there are some similarities, though. This virus has some similarities, say, to dengue virus. And there is like a family of these viruses that maybe have similar effects on the development of the nervous system or even of the organism as a whole or similarities in the channels that they use to get into the body and the cells. Is this an area? Are you considering expanding your look at what's different organisms, different, not organisms, technically, viruses. <laughs> so the, the way we did it was, I think this is also a really a case where scientific collaboration is very, very important. Because if you think about almost none of the virologists know how to grow organoids, right? All the people who study organoids, probably we don't know how to deal with those viruses. And this is really a case where you have to have people work together. And we are lucky. Um, we just find actually turn around to be we're looking for each other. We were a classmate at the UCSD. We both graduate student there. And Hanley Towns could work on virus. We work on neural stem cells. We actually even vacation together, but we never thought we were going to collaborate. And until one day, this Zika come along. We said, oh, we actually have the missing piece of the other. So we send students and we send cells around. 
We did. Uh, we actually expand that. Exactly as you said, he's looking at other members of the same uh, flavivirus family. For example, this dengue virus, this West Nile virus. They're all nasty virus, but they actually have very different impact on the nervous system. For example, the West Nile virus are more likely to infect in mature neurons or glial cells instead of the stem cells. And the Zika virus don't really infect the neurons that well. Suddenly, we actually realized the virus, uh, people study other viruses already have that problem for a long time because they don't have a good model. The mouse is not a good model sometimes. They really need a humanized model. But because those are not so prominent, people didn't pay enough attention. Suddenly now we did. So actually we think this hopefully changed the pace of other virus study because now we use organoid for West Nile now. We actually have a new model we can study West Nile virus. So this is sort of the benefit of everything together. Yeah. Is a pregnant woman infected during the first trimester? Is she infected during the third trimester? Is it a child who's seven years old? Is it an adult? And which virus are we talking about? And so there are some really interesting directions that this is going to go. Yeah, also that's the beauty of stem cell modeling is basically you can grow those stem cells to, to match the in vivo stages they expose the virus. You can try many things, right? For example, you can test different strain of virus. That's the other question people always have. Why the Africa strain? I mean, Africa has a virus for 50 years and nobody noticed the microcephaly there. What's the difference? There's all kinds of questions like that. But also uh, the other question is like in the case of hepatitis C, it turned out different people, genetic background make a difference. Some people are more sort of likely to be infected, others not. The IPS provide a beautiful model for that because you can test IPS cell generated from different people to see does anybody actually have a higher risk or, or not, right? So I think there's a lot of possibilities. The future is bright? I don't know. The future for you looks snowy from what I hear. That's right. It's, it's snowing hard here. I do want to mention one more thing. It really is go beyond the Zika virus. I think this is the case uh, I mentioned a little bit before where this could be an entry point that allows the study how insult, uh, for example, a viral insult caused microcephaly, and how even that intact with the genetic insult to look at normal human development. I think that's one really was very exciting thing to do for many years to come. And the second is also learning from other fields, for example, in the case of HIV. Clearly, HIV is a terrible virus, and now we have a good handle from them. But on the other hand, HIV provides a very good tool for basic science research because now people use lentivirus. You can use that to infect the cells, you can do manipulations, you can do gene therapy, all that. The Zika virus has the potential for that as well because you, for whatever reason, you actually have a tropism for stem cells. And that's if people can engineer a Zika virus for that, that would be beautiful because that allows you to target stem cell population. So you can study all the biology uh, we normally cannot do easily, right? Yeah. That's just mind-blowing idea right there. I, I love it. it. Yeah. Therapeutic payloads by Zika. <laughs> by Zika. <laughs> the silver lining. And the other one, actually, you can have a guess. Actually, the most email I got after we published a paper is not all about all this. The paper I got the most was people said, Oh, the virus seems to be hitting neural stem cells. Do they actually target glioblastoma? It is actually a tool for glioblastoma to treat glioblastoma because if they are home in to the tumor, they have stem cell properties, you kill them, 
That's beautiful. I think that's all possibility to test. I think we can turn this bad virus into a good tool in the future. That's a great way to end. The future looks bright. 2017, we're turning Zika around, make it work for us. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> uh, take that bite away from it, turn it into something really good. This has been fantastic. Dr. Song, your work is just fantastic. And your, the idea is just talking with you. It's inspirational. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thanks for having me. This is fun. It was a fun conversation. Yeah. Right, take care. Great. I think it's good. Wow, the, your lead is great. That's good. That's good. <laughs> All right. What an amazing interview with Dr. Sung. What a smart guy. I mean, at the end, I wanted to kind of reset because he like he dropped all those bombshells at the end. You know, oh, next we'll do this. Next we'll do this. Who would have thought? Oh. Zika virus, you know, flipping the script. We're going to make you work, Zika. Yeah, this is something, you know, historically, we learn from things that go wrong, right? You know, in, in the brain, it's you ablate an area of the brain so you can find out what that part of the brain is useful for, you know, and now it's like, we know Zika gets into cells during development. How does it get in? What's it affecting? What is this pathway? Oh, my gosh, there are so many possibilities once we use Zika as our little going to be a little trojan horse into the cell someday yeah who would have thought like he alluded to hiv you know the scourge of the 80s now hiv is saving lives it's the new yeah. line of therapy for delivering genes in the context of genetic disease in the context of cancer so maybe zeke will be the next hiv no one will die from it and a lot of lives will be saved fingers crossed right yeah well we can hope we can hope and you know what it's time for I don't know. It's not time for any more hope. It's time for our rant. <laughs> it's time for the good old stem cell podcast rant. It's our chance to complain, be pessimistic. I don't know. I try about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. So, Dalen, what are we ranting about today? I got stuff that bothers me for days. <laughs> you do. I know this. Okay. What is it today? I mean, I can be hopeful. I can be hopeful, but I'm also realistic and I'm not so realistic about some people, though. You know, I think the New Year, I've never been one for New Year's resolutions, but I'm not going to mention who was because I don't want to get into trouble. But someone I know close to me was explaining to me the virtue of a kind of anti-resolution. And it's not even anti-resolution. It's just acknowledging in the New Year, taking a moment to acknowledge your limitations and your faults and to own them, accept them and move on with your life and be positive about them. And over the course of this explanation, I realized that that was just so much BS, okay? And the new year is not a time to say, I'm totally flawed and that's awesome. Be serious, that's just being lazy. That's saying, yeah, I got flaws, but I'm not gonna do anything about it. I mean, that's what I do every year, I'll be honest, but I'm not calling it something like it's a good thing. I'm just saying I'm lazy, okay, Kiki? It's time to just be serious. Resolve something or don't. Yeah. Don't anti-resolve. Yeah, because if I don't resolve the dishes in the sink, they stay there. <laughs> Nobody else is going to clean that up for me. Seriously. <laughs> I am totally fine with this dirty kitchen. 
That's okay. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Let's try that in other contexts in your life. Acknowledging that you smell, accepting it, and not taking a shower. Come on. I am happy with my microbiome <laughs> and my fetid <feeded> yeah. odor. <laughs> no good. No good. No good. No. Do you have any resolutions this year? Are you perfect? No, I'm not. I'm far from perfect, but I'm also not really the resolution taking type. You know, I understand that maybe, you know, it's a good time to take stock of where you are and maybe take new steps to move forward. But the whole resolution thing, I think it's just like you are setting yourself up to fail. I'm going to do this. And it's like, yeah, yeah I'm going to go to the gym every day. And it's like, no, yeah, you'll do that for a week or two. You got to do one thing at a time. You know, my thing is I'm going to start a new philosophy. Every time you fail, resolve not to fail again. There's my there's my personal. <laughs> I make a resolution pretty there much every day, every single day. I don't want to regret things. I'm going to learn from it and move forward and not do it again. So it's like, oops, I did that. But I'm not going to just like feel bad about it forever. Got him. Right. On. That's just going to make me feel bad. So move on. Do better. Learn from it. Life lessons, right? Life lessons. I can take that. You take them. Take tarts as tarts as passing. Come on. No anti-resolve, okay? Be serious, no. people. Be serious. Every day is an opportunity to do something to make yourself better. Wow. Not now just New we're Year's like a Day. After school special time. There huh? we go. Wow. <laughs> all right. I can't go that far. Kiki can get away with saying stuff like that, but you guys all know that that's not plausible coming out of my mouth. So listen to Kiki. Don't be like me. <laughs> That's always good advice. <laughs> oh my goodness. You guys like this rant? Let us know. Do you have any other rant ideas? Let us know. Twitter at stem cell podcast or email stem cell podcast at gmail.com. All right, Dalen, this concludes episode 83 of the stem cell podcast. Another great interview and great show full of science information. Everyone be sure to tune in for our next episode where we'll be back with another interview and more science just for you. All those stem cells dividing, being stem cell-y in the next two weeks. A lot of expansion. So There's going to be a expansion. ton of them by then. That's right. Two weeks of expansion? That's crazy talk. All right, Dalen. I'm looking forward to the next one. Me too. Big pile of stem cells. <laughs>